Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ gave this great commission to his followers. Matthew chapter 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The book of Acts, which is the story of the church on fire, it is filled with examples of people who are seeking to fulfill this holy mandate and make disciples of all nations. But in my opinion, we are often guilty of a great omission. We're often guilty of neglecting the latter part of the Great Commission, which is to teach everyone the commands of Jesus. We often neglect teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Os Guinness refers to that as the Great Omission. We omit that part, but we should not because because our mandate is to make disciples. How? By going, baptizing, and by teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded, to teach people to obey everything Jesus commanded, no matter how hard it is. And some days, it's hard. We make disciples by teaching people of all ages. And right now, in in, in the gathering place and beyond, in the new classrooms, dedicated small group leaders are teaching our children how to be disciples of Jesus. Of all ages. We are are desirous to make disciples of all ages by teaching them to observe, to obey all that Jesus commanded. The Bible records what Jesus commanded, right? If we want to know what Jesus commanded, what Jesus taught, we go to the Bible, right? We go to the Bible, right? We We go to the Bible. The Bible contains everything that Jesus commanded. So if we want to make disciples, we should make Good use of the Bible. It just stands to reason. And that's what I call word-driven discipleship. Word-driven disciple makers are men and women who make much of the Word of God as they're teaching and helping others to grow. We preach from the Bible. We, 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 we give advice from the Bible. We, we lead from the Bible. We counsel from the Bible. And this passage in the book of Acts that we're looking at today contains some brilliant illustrations and examples of what word-driven discipleship actually looks like. And we need to learn from these examples, Acts chapter 18 and 19. We need to learn from the examples that we see here and put it into practice so that we can raise up a large number of word-driven disciple-makers from the gathering. Because if we're going to keep planting churches... And, and uh, expanding the kingdom of God, we need more word-driven disciple-makers in our midst. How can we make strong, biblical, courageous, gospel-centered 
grace-saturated, spirit-focused disciple-makers. Well, here we go. The first example is Paul and his ministry of following up all these new churches that he had planted. Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Key phrase, strengthening all the disciples. So this is where Paul's third missionary journey actually takes place. The latter part of Acts chapter 18. After stopping in Antioch again, Acts 18.22, he retraces his steps. He's now going back to all the churches that he's planted. He's going back to visit all the disciples that have been made, strengthening them, encouraging them in the word. Paul circles back. He's a church planner, and he wants to make sure that uh, all of the churches that he's planted and the new Christians that have come to faith learn to walk before they start to run. Critically important. Sometimes people come to know Jesus, and we just expect them to be spiritually mature overnight. He went from one place to the next, from one church to the next, doing what? Strengthening the disciples. With potlucks? Probably not. He likely used the word of God. Paul's evangelistic zeal was mingled with a a passion for spiritual growth and healthy churches. He was a word-driven disciple maker. And if you were to come to Plant Southwest on Saturday, March 30th, here at the gathering, you will observe the same kind of evangelistic zeal, the same kind of commitment to spiritual growth and church planting and strengthening the disciples as you see here in Acts chapter 18. We'll have some church planters coming to Plant Southwest on March 30th. Uh, We want you to meet them. And I guarantee you that our guest speaker will take your breath away. Absolutely phenomenal guy. So we host the event. We raise money to to support it. We, We develop the idea from scratch. Well, not really from scratch. We stole it from Send Detroit, but uh, we've modified it. And it's, it's, it's our baby. Plant Southwest is the gathering. That's our baby. We have, a, we have a passion for church planting and for growing healthy churches. And we invite pastors and lay people and elders and deacons from all across the city and all across the region. And they come here to get the kind of encouragement that Plant Southwest offers. So I really hope that you will plan to join us on Saturday, March 30th from 9 till 1 and, and just get infected with a church planting virus. And once it's in your system, you won't be able to get it out of you. It's going to be a great morning for all of us. It was at the end of the school year in 1997 that a teacher named Judith Tonsing wrote in one of her grade 6 students' report card. Grade 6 students. She said, uh, you've done so well this year. Make sure you invite me to your university graduation. Grade 6 student. 21 years later, that student did just that. Kristen Gilmore, now 33 years of age, kept and treasured that note from her grade 6 teacher. So when Gilmore graduated from the university in May of 2018 as a doctor, her grade 6 teacher was there to share that big moment with her. 
What did Kristen say? She lit a fire in me. Teachers do that. When Paul followed up on these new churches and these new Christians, he lit a fire in them for evangelism and church planting. And that's one of the reasons why we're hosting Plant Southwest. Before it's time for me to buy a rocking chair and sit on the front porch drooling on my shirt, I want to infect as many people as possible with the church planting bug. Five years ago, most of my pastor buddies in the city thought I had lost my mind. And a few months after that, I was convinced that I had lost my mind too. <laughs> but look at what God has done. And, and, and he's, he's, he's done some great things in Goderich, and he's done some great things in Sarnia. He's done some great things in Nashville. We have a team going to the Dominican Republic at the end of the month, and I hope that you'll come to the, to the winter barbecue today to support them. But we're, we're hopeful that maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can participate in church planning in the Dominican Republic, and then we can all go there on March break to work. At least one day. <laughs> We're hosting Plant South Best because we want to light a fire in the hearts of men and women for church planting and healthy, healthy, healthy church growth. Not the kind of gimmicks and the kind of stuff that you see prevailing today. Healthy church growth that's built on the Word of God and biblical discipleship. Amen? Are you with me? Okay. So Paul strengthened all the disciples by reminding them to observe all that Jesus had commanded, that's word-driven discipleship. Let me introduce you to a couple more word-driven disciple-makers out of this passage. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And they were used by God to fill in the gaps for Apollos. We're reading now from Acts 18.24, and I know you have your Bible open or your Bible app. And you're reading along with me as I read out loud. Acts 18.24, now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting. While Paul was traveling and following up all these new churches, a man from Alexandria came to Ephesus. His name was Apollos. He had a pretty impressive resume. Maybe you picked that up as we read the passage. He was competent in the scriptures. He was fervent in the spirit. He had wonderful teaching skills. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And yet he needed some further instruction. Something was missing. Aquila and Priscilla heard him and they discerned that there was something missing from his teaching, from his understanding, from his exposition. So they took him aside privately so that they wouldn't embarrass him in front of everybody else. And they taught him the way of God more accurately. 
He needed some more instruction in the faith. He, he knew only the baptism of John. So he appears to be a Christian for sure, but his understanding and his doctrine were incomplete. So they take him aside and they, 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 they fill in the gaps, so to speak. That's what they did. They filled in the gaps. They were helping a disciple maker become a more effective disciple maker by teaching him the word and filling in the gaps. And, and we are trying to do that here at the gathering. We, we, are, we are trying to fill in the gaps. Uh, people have, over the last four or five years, people have come from a, a wide range of, of backgrounds spiritually, and, and they have some gaps theologically. Um, uh, sometimes we, we have people that are emerging leaders in our church or existing leaders in our church, and, and, and they have gaps. And so we try to fill those gaps uh, strategically with the right information, the right material, the right teaching aids, and that kind of thing. That's what we try to do here at the gathering. We have lots of seasoned leaders, and we have some emerging leaders, men and women, who are engaged in Bible studies and, and book studies. They're reading books together and discussing books so they can learn the way of God more accurately. Even our, our elders team, six of us, every time we meet together for a, regularly, uh, a regular elders meeting, we also discuss the chapter of a book that we're reading together called Christian Beliefs. We're discussing 20 major Christian doctrines and filling in the gaps as we go. We're, we're discussing things like the Trinity and prayer and atonement and resurrection and and justification and adoption and sanctification and perseverance and many other important Christian doctrines. You see, here at the gathering, we're trying to fill in the gaps so that our people will be able to teach and share the Word of God more accurately than they already do. And we got some pretty skilled people. But we're getting better at it. Another example from this passage is Apollos. This same guy who Aquila and Priscilla helped is now helping believers and refuting the Jews. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. They take him aside. They, they, they fill in the gaps a little bit and then send him out. And here he is in verse 27. When he, meaning Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, you see, word-driven disciple-makers, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Can you explain, using the scriptures, that Jesus really is the Christ of God? If not, maybe you need to fill in the gaps <laughs> along the way. So he had two really important ministries in Achaia. First of all, he helped those who through grace had believed. He, he's helping new believers. He, he helps the believers by teaching the scriptures, and he worked hard to do it. And then he powerfully refuted the Jews who were not believers yet. And he used the scripture to do that, and he worked hard to do that. The Bible is sufficient for building up the faith and for tearing down falsehood. 
The Bible is sufficient for making disciples and for confronting deception and challenging religious misconception. Now, this may surprise you just a little bit, but there is some religious misconceptions out there. Have you discovered that? Not in my notes. I read an article this weekend. Troubling to the core. Appeared in a Christian publication. The title of which was Four Reasons Why You Should Have Premarital Sex With Your Evangelical Sweetheart. Look it up. Religious misconceptions. Hokey, Dinah. Patty said, never say that from the pulpit. (laughs) Hokey, Dinah. Four reasons why you should have premarital sex with your evangelical sweetheart. That is a religious misconception if there ever was one. So just because somebody says, you know, well, I, I go to church. I'm good. I go to the United Church, Anglican, Presbyterian, I go to church. There's a lot of religious misconceptions out there. And just because somebody goes to church, even because somebody comes to the gathering, don't take anything for granted. Don't just assume because somebody says, I'm a believer, that they really understand what they're talking about. Now, I'm not saying judge others and you know, hold everybody suspicious at arm's length like, Oh, yeah, okay, can you, can you recite the 39 articles? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we have to be careful. If we're going to be word-driven disciple-makers, we've got to go according to the Word. The Word, the Word, day and night, 24-7, no exceptions, no apology, no compromise, ever. Is that okay? I'm planning to. So the word of God is sufficient, but, 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 but helping believers can be hard work, can it? it? It's demanding, it's rewarding, but it, it's hard work. Law professor and technology expert Tim Liu explains that there is a, an underestimated force that drives our daily lives, and that's convenience. Hmm. He says, we want nearly everything about our lives to be convenient, efficient, and easy. Isn't that the truth? Of course, there are benefits to some of life's conveniences, and I have a few of those at my house, and some in my office, and a few in my car. But he also warns that there can be a dark side. With its promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, he says, convenience threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much, he says. Wow. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. So, we need to follow up new believers and new churches and strengthen disciples, even when it's not convenient. I can't go to that Bible study on Monday night. That's my bowling night. And I can't go Tuesday night either, because that's when I meet the guys for wings and suds. 
And Wednesday night, well, that's my night at home. And Thursday night, well, I have to get groceries. And Friday night, well, that's date night. And Saturday, well, I'm getting ready for church. It's never convenient, you know? It just isn't. We need to fill the gaps of biblical discernment wherever they might be. And that's not usually convenient. We need to help believers and refute religious misconception wherever it appears according to the word of God. And that, my friends, is never convenient or comfortable. That stuff is never convenient. It's never easy. But if we don't do it, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Huh? Who do we leave it to? We need to be the ones who are engaged in this kind of ministry. Disciple makers who are driven by the word of God. The fourth and final example of word-driven disciple making in this passage, again, is from Paul, who is evangelizing the Ephesians. All of Acts chapter chapter 19 takes place in, in Ephesus. While Apollos was watering the seed in, in Corinth, Paul arrives in Ephesus, the major stop on his third missionary journey. And in Ephesus, we find Paul exalting the, script, exalting the Savior and explaining the Scriptures. Exalting the Savior and explaining the Scriptures. That sounds like a good, good church model. Exalting the Savior, explaining the Scriptures. First of all, he explains the scripture to the disciples of John and then to the Jews in the synagogues. And thirdly, he speaks publicly in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, a public lecture hall. So three venues, three different groups of people, which takes all of Acts chapter 19, which is 41 verses. So I'm not going to read them all. That's your homework. You go home and read Acts chapter 19. But... All of these verses affirm the fact that Paul is indeed a word-driven disciple-maker. First of all, we look at the ministry to the disciples of John in verses 1 and 2. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, at the beginning of... Of this chapter, Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters some disciples in this great city of Ephesus. But as you read on in the passage, you, you discover very quickly that the word disciples is used here in its broadest sense. The, the word is mathetes, which means le- learner or student. And so in the broadest sense, these, these men were, were disciples. They were disciples of John, however. They were learners or students of John. They likely knew about Jesus. For sure they knew about Jesus, but they were not up to speed with all that had happened since Jesus was put to death. Did you receive the Holy Spirit uh, when you believed? Paul asked them. They said, no. Didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What's that about? And so he, he takes time to tell them. They had not even heard about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2, in, in Jerusalem. So these were religious-minded guys, again, who had been baptized into John's baptism, which was only a baptism of repentance. So again, it's incomplete. They need to have the gaps filled in. Paul teaches them more about Jesus. He teaches them more about the Spirit. And then having learned how Jesus fulfilled the message of John the Baptist, these disciples of John become disciples of Jesus. 
So this is probably the moment of salvation for these disciples of John. And they were baptized immediately. Which is, which is the model that you find in the New Testament, by the way. When people believe in Jesus, they're baptized right away. Not this 5, 10, 20 years later. They're baptized right away. And so if you're here this morning and you, uh, you have uh, believed in Christ, either recently or previously, and you've never been baptized, hey, I got good news for you. We're having baptism services right around Easter. So let uh, Pastor Phil or Pastor Kale or myself know, talk to one of the elders, and we will hook you up with some water. (laughs) Here, baptism is simply and powerfully a declaration that we belong to Jesus. Who wouldn't want to do that if you truly believe in Jesus? So they were baptized immediately, and Paul lays hands on them. They begin to speak in tongues just like the believers did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So this was an outward demonstration and verification that these people, these guys were now born again and had received the Holy Spirit. And at that time, in that moment, God very graciously provided the physical affirmation of speaking in tongues. This was not a normative experience because not in every case in the book of Acts, when people believed in Jesus, did they, uh, or, or were filled with the Spirit, did they speak in tongues? But in some cases they did, but not all. So it's not a normative experience. That's the position of uh, the gathering, and that's the position of the senior pastor here. It's not a normative experience. It does happen, but in this particular case, it happened. He wanted them to know absolutely for sure that they had received the Spirit. Does that make sense? Now let's have a look at the ministry to the Jews in the synagogue. Paul has ministry to the disciples of John and then the Jews in the synagogue, verses 8 and 9. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. So in the beginning, he has, he has liberty and freedom to just, to just teach away and preach away, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God for three months. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Things went south quickly after that. So we had three good months of teaching and then opposition. So as was his custom, Paul evangelized in the synagogue. He starts with the religious-minded people around him proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. Not, Not a bad strategy. Some of them became followers of Jesus, but others persisted in their unbelief. They slandered the way of Jesus. So Paul eventually withdraws from the synagogue and goes to the public lecture hall the hall of Tyrannus, to keep sharing Jesus. See the progression? Disciples of John, Jews in the synagogue, then he goes public, into the public arena. So you might be wondering, what are we going to do next? Well, we're going to rent the WFCU Center. We're going to go public. Just kidding. Uh, so let's have, a look. let's have a look at his ministry now in the hall of Tyrannus, which is this public lecture hall. Mind you, now, now in, the, in, the, in the synagogue, he's just got Jews and maybe a few interested Gentiles. Now he's going to the public hall of Tyrannus, where he's going to have Jews and Gentiles and young and old and people of all persuasions. Verses 9 and 10. He withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul took the new believers with him. He wanted to 
you know, this is, come on with me, watch what I do, listen to what I say. He's discipling them. You know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That was his, that was his thing. A good strategy. And he continued his evangelistic exposition of the scriptures here in the hall of Tyrannus. He reasons with them from the scriptures. So again, he's a word-driven disciple maker. He knows that if we don't build our ministry on the word, and we don't plant new churches that are focused primarily on the word, and we try to do discipleship in our small groups by not using the word, we're doomed. There are dead churches all across this land that abandoned their commitment to the word of God a long time ago. And now they're just social clubs. You know, social justice. They fight against this and against that and uh, everything else. But there's no preaching of the gospel because they've abandoned the inspired scriptures. If, If you want to strengthen little disciples in your family... Use the word. You want to win someone to faith in Jesus Christ, somebody that you care about, somebody that you love? Use the word of God. There's nothing more powerful than God's word to break the hearts of people. You follow up on new believers in your your sphere of influence? Use the word of God. We need to become word-driven disciple makers. You need to fill in the gaps of Bible knowledge or understanding theology in your small group or in your family. Use the Word of God. You're going to challenge religious misconceptions at work or in your neighborhood or at school. Use the Word of God. If you're going to reason with somebody about abortion or human trafficking or sex abuse in the church or gay marriage, then you should use the Word of God. Don't give them your own opinions. Give them God's opinion. That's what, that's what really matters. So we need to be people of the book. We need to be people of the book. Day and night, we, we need to be people of the book. Don't just, don't go out and buy a Nice new leather-bound Bible just to bring to church. Use it Monday through Saturday, day and night. We need to be people of the book. We might not have perfectly paved parking lot. Our building will be under construction and under renovation for a long time to come. There are a lot of things we, we don't have, but we can be people of the book. We can point people to the person who wrote it, the author of this book that is life-changing. We need to be people of the book. And that's the commitment I'm asking you to make this morning, is to become a people of the book. Why? Because everything depends on it. We cannot disciple people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus unless we are people of the book. Will you be a people of the book? Let's pray. Father, we we never, ever want to be negligent when it comes to fulfilling every part of the Great Commission. 
Yes, we're eager to make disciples. And we need to do that by going, baptizing, and teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded, not just the parts we like. And I guess, Father, in order for that to happen, we have to be people of the book, word-driven disciple-makers. So would you please, by your great grace, work into us what we need to work out in order for that to happen? Capture our hearts and our affections again this morning with grace so we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds, making disciples all along the way, men and women and boys and girls who bring more glory and more honor to the name of Jesus. That is our heart's desire this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.